Our scripture reading for this evening as we begin, it comes from the book of First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 29. This is God's word. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Let's pray together. It is remarkable for us to reflect, O oh Lord, that, that you, out of your mere goodness and mercy, looked upon our sorry race and covenanted with your Son to rescue a people for yourself out of our vast number. Your Son became one of us, came to live for us, to suffer under Pontius Pilate and to die for us. You sent your Son for a race of sinners who hated him when he came, but which he met with only love and mercy. Forgive us, O Lord, for the very sins which we know made such a life and death necessary, for even our sins this very week which nailed Christ to the tree, for the ways in which we followed after other gods, Lord, forgive us, for the ways in which we could have shared the good news of your Son, but for fear of man we didn't, Lord, forgive us. For neglecting your word, Lord, forgive us. For not giving you glory as we should in all things, Lord, forgive us. We thank you that in confessing our sins, we can be confident. Because we know that your scriptures say that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you, O Lord, for your glorious grace for which we will sing your praises now. And eternally we lift your people before you O God especially those who suffer under the heavy burden of physical infirmities and problems that some of us have difficulty even fathoming what it's like to live with we ask you to heal your people to bring health but we also recognize that you do these use these things to shape us you use these things to sanctify your people and so we ask you Help your people, Lord, even tonight, so that when they suffer, they bring the glory to you and testify to your goodness by trusting in you. Give us as a body, as a church, a love for those who suffer such that we do reach out, that we do care in the best ways that we're able at this time, and help your people in whatever way we can. And make your people your hands and feet to show love and care within the body of Christ and help your people always to regard you yourself as of greater worth than power or wealth or influence or, or freedom or health. Help us always to trust you, to cling to you, and to tell our friends and neighbors about the faithful Lord who has carried us this far. And now, O oh God, we ask that you would assist us as we continue in our worship of your glorious name this evening by listening to your word with careful attention. We ask you to help us to do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture passage for this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17 as we read verses 31 through the first part of verse 50. Hear now the word of God. 
When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to, in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And with the, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog, that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Father, would you open the storehouse of heaven and share your blessings with us tonight? Help us to see what you have for us here in your word, and then send your spirit to apply these truths to our hearts. So we ask you for your favor and grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
seminarians and, and pastors have our own little sort of subculture. Uh, what I mean by that is we have our private conversations where we joke about things that nobody else finds funny. Um, actually, usually in public when we joke also, people don't find that funny either, or maybe that's just me. Um, but I, I am going to make a confession. We can sometimes be, in the things we joke about, we can be a little bit smug uh, and a little bit maybe maybe arrogant uh, in some of the stuff we joke about. And we can be smug especially about cliched or overdone um, sermon preaching points. Um, just to give you an idea, and this relates to tonight's sermon, I mentioned a few weeks ago to some friends that I was preaching on David and Goliath, and one of my friends jokingly said to me, you should make sure to ask the people who their Goliath is. You should make sure to ask the people who their Goliath is. And I knew this friend, and I knew that he was joking. He was making fun of this sort of preaching, this sort of preaching trope that it seems like you always hear when you hear David and Goliath preached about this idea that the congregation has giants in their lives that need to be slain, and they're just the person to do it. If only they would step forward and have faith. And part of the reason why preachers think it's funny, or at least Reformed ministers tend to think that's funny, is because we know that the point of the story of David and Goliath is not that David is a great savior or that David is a great hero, but that God is a great savior and God is a great rescuer for his people. The point is not that David, if he only has enough faith, can slay his giants. The point is that God will use us if we will just appear. And any reading of David and Goliath that, that doesn't reckon with Christ, though, is a problem because as we know and as we saw in Luke 24 right what does what does Jesus do on the road to Emmaus he opens all the scriptures and shows them how they point to him and that includes episodes like this fight with Goliath so any reading of David and Goliath that doesn't reckon with Christ is only getting half of the narrative and we started to sort of approach that last week, as, as I think you saw. I think that instinct to see David here as more than a historical story, to see him as a picture of Christ. And that instinct is, is right. And yet there, there is also a balance here. This is a story that happened. It happened in real time. It happened in real history. David was a real man who actually stood in front of an actual giant and actually believed these things about God that made this moment possible. It's actual history. It isn't just a tale. It's not an inspirational story that's supposed to make us think about Jesus. It is historical. It is a record of real events. But the Bible also points to this as an example for each of us, which means it may be wrong for us to read this narrative as solely an inspirational tale. But it would also be negligent for us not to see it in the bigger picture of Scripture. This is a passage that testifies to Jesus as well. And yet it's a, and yet it's a record of faith. And yet it's a record of somebody who lived and live by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, 
the in the in the in the in Hebrews chapter eleven, the author of Hebrews recounts numerous examples of people who lived by faith in the Lord. And after listing Abraham and Joseph and Moses and and others, he says this. He says, "And what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David." And Samuel and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. That's from Hebrews chapter 11. And so, in other words, when the New Testament is reckoning with the life of someone like David, the author of Hebrews sees David as an example and a portrayal of faith. And even as an example for all of us who want to live a life of faith as well. So, as with all Old Testament texts, it is also a text that leads us to Christ. This is a both-and situation. It is both a Christian text, and it is an example of living faith for each of us. I guess what I'm saying is that it is not illegitimate for Christians to read a passage like this and ask the question, what can I learn about living a life of faith from David here? That is not a wrong reading of 1 Samuel. The important thing, though, is that we should not stop there. The point is not ultimately that we are the hero, that we can be the hero, since that isn't the point of the text anyway. We need to go further than David. We need to go beyond David, and we need to be led to Jesus. But we should also read the Old Testament remembering that these are the lives of people who walk similar walks and fight similar fights that all of us as believers in Christ wage on one level or another, on a daily basis. There is a spiritual dimension to David's fight that we can all relate to and that we should emulate. Now, there are many lessons for us here, and we, we could approach this passage in any number of ways, but I simply want to pick two for us to focus on this evening. First, I want to deal with David's faith, and then second, I want to deal with God's victory. The first point tonight is that we learn from David that faith looks back. Faith looks back. Uh, at the beginning of our, of our reading, before David runs into down to the battle line and before he faces off with uh, Goliath, first he meets with Saul. Saul still has, is very much judging by appearances, and so he looks at David, and his response is, you can't do this. Right? He, says, he says, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. In Israel, the youngest that you could be and join the military was 20 years old, according to Numbers chapter 26. So the fact that David doesn't seem to be old enough for this it means that he is probably below the age of 20. We don't know how young he is. We also don't for sure know how old he is. But Saul looks at this young man, probably under the age of 20, and he sees someone who is not ready to face a seasoned, terrifying 
warrior. In other words, in other words, he has no confidence in this young man whatsoever. Uh, nor is Saul the sort of man with divine confidence in him either. If he doesn't have worldly confidence in David, you would think, well, a godly person still could say, God can win this battle. Saul doesn't have that either. Remember, this is, this is something that Saul has been in the process of losing now for quite some time. Now, in spite of Saul, David is a man of hope. In fact, it's a contrast to Saul. David is a man of hope. He is face to face with a hopeless person here, David is. David is looking at Saul. He is seeing this hopeless individual. He is seeing this person who seems to have no anticipation that anything great is going to be accomplished here. And so, what is happening? David is presented by Saul with an apologetic opportunity. Remember, apolog apologetic, apologia, the Greek word apologia, means reason. It means reason for a hope. Peter tells us that we should always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Well, that's what's happening here right now. David is being presented with an apologetic opportunity to explain why it is that he has hope that he could face off against this giant, even though in a worldly sense, there's really no explanation for it. We live in a world that is filled with people who, who, who may have hope, but the kind of hope they have is a, is a shallow hope. It's, it's a momentary kind of hope. It's a sort of hope that ebbs and flows depending on the season. Sort of hope that sort of evaporates and loss and is lost with the slightest changing of the wind or the the uh, new information or new news coming in. And so, as the news gets bad, hope diminishes, and as the news gets better, hope increases. You probably see that right now. We see a lot of people around us who are in full panic mode because. Our mood changes with the news, right? There were 400 new cases today. There were 100 new cases today. Oh, this is a good day. Um, depending on what the news says, people's hope increases and diminishes. So, so Christians, though, are meant to be different than that. We are supposed to have a deep hope, not a shallow hope. So what do I mean by deep hope? What I mean is hope that doesn't change with the season, doesn't change with the headlines of the day. When, when people see deep hope in your life and they see that it lasts and they see that it endures and they see that it is not fragile because the news can topple it over, you need to be ready to do what David does here and tell them why you have that deep hope that doesn't change with the seasons. Saul is calling upon David to give a reason why he's willing to face this giant. And very importantly, his answer is one that looks up to God and looks back to God's previous work. So David's response to Saul is to tell him a story about something that's happened in the past. His response is to look back at God. So he tells Saul that while he was watching the sheep, lions, and bears had come and taken lambs from the flock. Um, each time, David went on a hunt and saved the lamb from the mouth of the enemy, and then he struck the creature and killed it in the process of defending the lamb. Now, I suspect there is, is not a more terrifying creature that lives on land than, than the bear, 
probably the case. Um, Aaron's uh, mother, I, I think I'm recalling the story correctly. My wife will tell me whether I'm wrong after the fact. Uh, but Aaron's mother and aunt and other family members were in Alaska and a couple of years ago, and they were watching grizzly bears. And they were at quite a distance away. They had a nice long lens so they could photograph from a great distance. And uh, if I remember the story correctly, Aaron's aunt was wearing these waders to walk into the water with. Uh, but it was a hot day, so the uh, straps on the shoulders that sort of hold the waders up had sort of fallen down the sides. And so the waders, she was in shallow water, had kind of fallen down around her knees. And so as she was in the water, she was taking photographs, snapping pictures of this grizzly. And at one point, the grizzly turned directly toward her, began to face her, and charged her. Well, here she is. Her legs are tangled up. She can't move. And so she is in a very bad position. The grizzly is charging her, and she isn't able to run away. Of course, they're incredibly fast. And it runs right past her because it was chasing something behind her. She wasn't even interesting to it. Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> All she could do was close her eyes and grit her teeth and maybe snap a few photos as a blur of hair ran past pondering what it would have been like to be eaten by a thousand-pound meat-eating machine. In the end, she was spared because the bear was running past her. And yet it gives you sort of just a, a moment to think about how terrifying a creature like a bear actually is. And so when we hear that David faced down a creature like that, we should resist the wrong conclusion, right? Because, because if you or I heard this story, we might think, this David fellow is no joke. Okay, David, you can, you can fight the giant now. Why would we ever doubt you? And that may actually be Saul's thought process as well. He doesn't hear this as a believer. He hears this as somebody who's looking for thin, worldly hope, not deep hope. And so David, though, draws a totally different lesson from this episode. The lesson that David learns is... It's the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. And the same Lord who delivered me from them will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So an unbeliever who's living on, on thin hope is going to look at this episode. And who is their hope going to be in? David. They're going to say, David knows how to fight. That's thin hope. David sees deep hope there. Well, How does he see, see deep hope? That can't be taken away. He sees it because God was the one who did these things. David's strength is going to ebb and flow. David's strength is going to be have highs and going to have lows. But God's strength never ebbs and flows. And David has seen the outworking of God's great strength in his life. And so the story of a lion or bear is not a story of David's might. It's not a story of David's bravery. David is just doing what a shepherd is supposed to do. He's following his calling. He's protecting the flock like he's supposed to. And he doesn't say that they will escape danger. He says that they can if God wills. David says, Yahweh delivered me from this creature and he can do the same with Goliath. See, David draws... A lesson out of his encounter with this creature, which has nothing, which, which, which was that 
Nothing can stop God when God is determined, not even the most terrifying creature that walks the land. Goliath is just another one of these powerless wild beasts in the hand of God. So notice that what moves David forward is the action of looking backward. He remembers God's past deliverance, which so impressed itself upon him that now he knows God will protect him if that's his will. In other words, David moves forward by looking back. David moves forward by looking back. In fact, looking back tells him something profound that Saul simply can't see. You see, David, Goliath is defenseless because he's uncircumcised. He doesn't belong to Yahweh, and so all of that armor is completely useless. That spear is just a doorstop. Without Yahweh on his side, without his covenant with, with God, that sword is just dead weight in Goliath's hand. It's completely useless. Without the God of Israel, that helmet that Goliath has on is just a big chunk of metal. How did David learn this lesson? He learned it by experience. By experiencing deliverance that, in his mind, make no earthly sense whatsoever. He lives on deep hope, not thin hope. Isn't David teaching us something about faithful living? David can move forward here because... He has learned that what God has done before helps us to face what is ahead. What God has done before helps us to face what is ahead, right? Past successes fuel future hope. Have you learned that lesson for yourself? Have you learned about God's past experiences, God's past deliverances? And have you seen that if he didn't abandon you then, he will not abandon you now? regardless of how the circumstances and the situation end up playing themselves out. There's a hymn in our Trinity hymnal, and I hope that when we start having evening services again, we will have sing this as our hymn of the month. Uh, I don't think we know this song. I certainly hadn't sung it before. But the song goes like this, Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some others to win. Think about what the hymn is saying there. Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some others to win. In other words, the idea here is that previous victories empower us for future victories. Previous victories empower us for future victories. That's exactly what's happening in David's life here. He has experienced these victories in his life, and in his mind, there's only one explanation for why this has even worked before. It's because God was with him. God was with him. And he saw it, and he understood it, and he believed it, and it changed how he faced the next challenge that came his way. Surely you can look into your own history to find victories that God has won for you. God is not done with you. 
It's not as though, oh, he helped you that one time, and now he's done. No. No, if, if he is your God, if you bear the seal of Yahweh upon you, then you're safe, you're secure, and he'll continue to carry you all the way to the very end. And so the message here for each of us is that David is a profound example of faith. Look to God, remember his faithfulness, and trust him for the future. This is a day and time and season of strangeness and uncertainty. Look to God's previous deliverances. Second tonight, we learn from David that God defeats his enemies. There's a simplicity here when it comes to the message of this passage. David may step out in faith, but this is God's victory. This is God achieving this, right? You see, even when David does take up weapons, do you notice what David uses? He, he has a stick and some stones. And all of these things that he comes to fight with, they come from nature. Think about what he's fighting with. Goliath is using a sword. He's using a spear. He's using weapons that have to be taken from nature. They have to be sharpened. They have to be hammered. They have to be uh, driven on uh, an anvil. They have to be shaped and made into weapons of war by man. Goliath comes into the battle with man's weapons. And yet what does David get? He gets a stick and he gets some stones, right? He gets these things that occur in nature. In fact, the passage wants us to know that it's not like these stones were taken and shaped or made into some sort of lethal object. Instead, it says that he took them from the river, right? So that we know that they weren't tampered with or made by people. These were weapons made by God. And Saul wanted him to use a man-made weapon and, and man-made armor. Saul wants him armed with the best that people can make. But David knows that this is God's fight, and so he should use God's weapons. It's honestly hard to think of a less impressive set of weapons that somebody could use to come at Goliath with, right? And Goliath feels the same way. He's very insulted. He says, I'm going to win this, this fight, and it's not, there's not even going to be any pride in it for me, because you just came to me with the sort of things that you play with dogs with. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks, he says in verse 43. And in verse 45, David makes all of this quite clear. He says, he says to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You see, those weapons don't matter. And they don't matter because God is in charge. God is sovereign. David, David could kill this guy with a marshmallow if the Lord saw fit. He could. He could kill Goliath with a marshmallow or a pillow or a feather if that's the tool that God wanted to use to accomplish this. Um, Ralph Davis says this so well. He says, what matters is not whether you have the best weapons or whether you have, but whether you have the real God. What matters is not whether you have the best weapons, but whether you have the real God. Because you see, this is God's battle. That is the level of the faith of David, but it's also the power of God to, to throw down his enemies. 
In the Bible, we see God use all sorts of bizarre weapons to destroy his enemies, right? The Battle of Jericho is not much of a battle, right? Because all they do is march around the city blowing horns. Here's what it comes down to. This is a theological contest. This is not a contest of, of wills. It is not a contest of weapons. This is not a, a matter of skill in battle. That's not what this is at all. This is a theological contest. In the book of Chronicles, Elijah has this moment where he does battle with the prophets of Baal. Maybe we think of that as a fight, but even then, what happens? God brings fire down from heaven, something that Elijah is incapable of. This is the way God wins his theological contests in the Old Testament. By stripping the people of anything that they could claim as their ability that made this thing happen. And David knows this going in, and so Goliath is about to find out the hard way that this is the way God shows his might and shows his power. So things happen quickly, right? After exchanging words, David makes very clear to Goliath that God, not David, will be the one to throw him down. David hurdles the stone, which sinks into Goliath's forehead and falls on his face. It is perhaps the most disappointing battle in all of the Bible. You see, the theological debate between God and Goliath and David's God is over, ended by a single rock. The results lay at David's feet. Next week, we're going to look at the aftermath of this fight, but for the moment, think about how all of the things we've seen come together, right? David is confident because God's past deliverances and past promises have shown him that he can be confident. We need that confidence, too. Then we see that the battle is won. And it's not won by David, it's won by God. Because of who God is. Because of who Yahweh is, and because he set his love upon his people, an incredible victory happens. And, by the way, this won't be the last spiritual victory in David's life. This is one of many. And that's true of all of us, right? When we live through God's deliverances in all their different forms, we become more and more fortified to face the next struggle when it comes along. We become more accustomed to trusting God all the time, each time that we do it. One of the things, and this is one of the reasons why I think it is precious to be in a church where there are believers who have followed the Lord for many years. Because as I speak to younger Christians... One of the things I see is I see more anxiety than I see in older saints. There's a, a fear about the future. There's anxiety about the future and what's going to be happening. When I talk to older saints, those who've walked with the Lord for a number of years, I sense less anxiety. I sense less fear on their parts because the more you've seen, the more you've experienced, the more you've seen the deliverance of God, the more you've seen God's faithfulness for year after year after year, the more enabled you are to be able to face what lies ahead and to know that God's will is going to work its way out. Um, at my old church back in Kansas years ago, there was a, a woman named Charlotte, uh, and she once said that facing cancer was the scariest thing she ever did. And she said that if she could live through in God's deliverance during that time, that she could learn to face anything. 
And it wasn't because she was learning how strong she was. It wasn't because she was looking within and seeing all of this, this great, mighty faith or something like that. Instead, she was realizing more and more as God carried her along that it's his strength all the while. Has God been teaching you the depths of his love? Has he been teaching you the depths of his greatness? Let me ask you a cliched question, if I might, just for a moment. Are there worldly concerns that overwhelm you? I bet there are. Are there things in this world that leave you in fear? I'd be surprised if there weren't right now. God has the answer. David puts it into practice. The answer is, look back. Now don't look back to your own actions in the past. Don't look back to your own record or, or anything like that. Goliath is exhibit A, that self-confidence is worthless. You never saw a more self-confident soldier, and it did him no good. What good is self-confidence when the self that you're confident in is marked for destruction, right? That's thin hope. That's the hope Goliath lives with. Instead of feeling confident because of your past achievements, look at God's past faithfulness in your family's life. In your, in your spiritual life, in, your, in saving your soul, in redeeming you from your own sin. Think of, the, think of the laundry list of kindnesses that you have experienced up to this moment and ask the question, would God really just drop you and all of a sudden cease caring about you? Is that his character? Is that what he is like? Is that the God that we know? Is that the God that presents himself to us in scripture never he says i will never leave you or forsake you it's a promise that is a promise from the heart of god and he has always kept it and and david looks back and he says god took care of me when it didn't even make sense so i know my life is in his hands can you say that The answer isn't overpowering guilt. It's not shame. It is simply an admonition to practice what David practices so that you're enabled to trust. How can you do that? First, fill your heart with confidence. Fill your heart with confidence by practices that sustain and remind you of his goodness. What does that look like? It's so simple. Read his word, sit under the preaching of the word, remember all that he's done, and fill your heart with the promises of God. What do you do? You sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You, you fill your heart with reminders and you carry them around with you. Do you memorize scripture? Memorizing scripture is an incredible method. To fill your heart with confidence in the promises of God and reminders of his past deliverance. You see, all of these things are methods of building your confidence in God. Just in the same way that David comes equipped with faith because he's looked to his past. You and I can look at God's past deliverances and fill our heart with them as well. You see, whatever it is that burdens and terrifies you about the present or the future, David's example is important tonight. Look back.
Look back at his past care for you. Look even further back. Look at the whole history of his people from the foundation of the world up until now. He is not a God who starts a project and then drops it and suddenly loses interest in those who love him. Most importantly of all, always remember that the victory and the glory belong to him. Our God has a history of loving and rescuing his people, and he, is, he has set his gaze upon, and he is full of precious promises and a track record of always keeping them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the truth is that when our confidence or our faith wavers, it isn't because of some deficiency in you or because you are lacking in something. It's because we've forgotten you. What we need more than anything else tonight is not to see something new, but to remember something old. To remember your past faithfulness. To remember your past promises. To remember what you have told us about yourself that we seem to always forget. But say, sustain us tonight. Sustain us this week with the reminder of who you are. And give us your spirit to drive these truths down into our soul. Lived out in our daily lives. We ask it in Jesus' name.